Hey, let's take our Bibles now and get into Colossians chapter one, verse one. So you got Galatians, you got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you got Romans and Acts and all that stuff, and then you're gonna get into Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians chapter one. I'm gonna read to you what we read last week, and we're gonna get into God's word and get God's word into us. Now, you'll remember that Paul, when he wrote this, is in prison, okay? This isn't a nice prison. This is a Roman prison, okay? You ever been to summer camp? Sometimes people think, you know, prison's like summer camp. Like, yeah, we got up early. We did some calisthenics. We lifted some weights, watched some TV, you know. We ate some burritos. It was awesome. That's not what he's going through. It's different, okay? It's not not a state penitentiary. It's not a county jail. This is a Roman jail, and Paul's an offender, And what the Romans loved to do is they loved to torture people in order that they would learn a lesson, but it also communicated a message. The more people we torture and kill, the more then we'll be able to squash rebellions. If they see you suffer, if they see you go down, man, they're gonna know that we mean business. And so Paul, in this condition of suffering, seeks to comfort others and to lead others when he writes this book, not just this book, but he wrote Philippians, Philemon, and Ephesians, all from prison. Another reminder we learned last week is that Paul had never been to Colossae. He'd never been to this town, never been to this church. He didn't know these people. I hope you have that same appreciation for the body of Christ everywhere. Men and women who love your Savior, who are going to heaven with you. And when you see a brother or sister from a different country, a different continent, or a different church, you say, whoa, are you for real? You love Jesus too? Man, let's hug, COVID hug. Let's, let's, you know, nux. Let's do something. Let's, I love you, man. I'm so glad to meet you. This is incredible. And Paul had never been to Colossae, and he was in a condition that he shouldn't be serving and giving his life to other people, but he chose to, knowing that was what he had been chosen by God to do, to serve. Nothing would stop the apostle Paul. Nothing could get him distracted. Nothing could get him depressed. Nothing could get him down. Not betrayal, not abandonment, not beatings, not imprisonment, Nothing. Matter of fact, Paul would say certain things like to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's like, dude, you can't stop that guy. No matter what I do, I'm doing it for Jesus. And if you kill me, I win. It's like, uh, okay, this guy's unstoppable. And Paul writes this letter for you and I that we would have that same type of faith. Paul used to intimidate me. I shouldn't say it that way. Paul does intimidate me. Still does. I'm, I'm, I still, he's a teacher, I'm a student. But, but I used to, I, used to I, I fall more and more in love with Paul every single year because I get to teach through the entire book of Acts once per year. I'm going up to Yakima on September 13th and I'm gonna be teaching through the entire book of Acts, 28 chapters in five sessions. And chapter 13 through 28 are all about Paul and his ministry and about what God did in his life. And every time I look at Paul in his fervor, in his zeal, in his joy, in his purpose, I always say, Lord, make me a little bit like Paul, just a little bit like Paul. Because Jesus is our hero, right? Can I get an amen? Jesus is our hero. He's our savior. There's no one like Jesus. There's no replica. There's no imitation. There's no substitution. There's no rival. Jesus is supreme. He's solo. He's preeminent. He's prominent. He's everything. He's the guy, right? But Jesus is God. And when I look at Jesus, there is a certain disconnect because I'm not God. I don't know if you guys know that. I'm not. It's funnier than it sounded. You guys didn't make that sound very funny, but it's funny. But Paul, Paul's just a man. He's just a man. He's just a normal dude. And while I try and be like Jesus, and we used to have those little bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do, you know? And every time I look at my life, he probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, you know? And it's the exact opposite. Paul, though, Paul's a dude, a normal guy, filled with the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit of God and the purposes of God. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, commit this to memory. 
Paul says something crazy. He says something that I will never be able to really say with, with deep conviction, but Paul said it. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Just do what I do, guys, and you'll be fine. Raise your hand if you, if you could say that right now to, to your kids, to your grandkids, to your employer, to your spouse. Just do what I do. You're going to be great. Like most of us will say, well, no, I'm kind of, don't do everything I do, you know. <laughs> I don't want you to know half the stuff I do, you know. It's like, and Paul's like, no, just imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what we got to do is settle into who Paul is, what God did through Paul's life, and as Paul leads us and guides us, he is the master pastor. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's writing this letter to a church he'd never been to in a situation in his life that wasn't going to get any better. And he wants us to be like him in that way. Today in our teaching, I'm going to try and extract six principles that are going to help you to grow in grace and in knowledge of Jesus Christ. Peter had told us to grow. These are six things you need to know if you're going to grow. Okay, let's read the first eight verses. We're only going to get through two verses today, but I want you to see this. He says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Guys, I want you to see this. Just keep reading with me a few more verses. He said, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things are created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, he may have preeminence. And it keeps going, it keeps getting better and better. Paul just goes nuts. This is Paul when he's in jail, sentenced to death, and he sees a church that's in duress and needs counsel. And he says, guess what? I'm praying for you. I haven't stopped praying for you since I heard about you. And I pray that God would give you all these things. And he goes into this long, lengthy prayer. Verses three through eight, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Don't have a period. I don't know if you've read that. Read it again later. If you're a, a grammatical teacher or whatever they call those people that teach grammar, language art, you're gonna be like, hey, put some periods in there, man. Take a breath, Paul. And he's like, dude, it's three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's one sentence. And then he says, I've been praying for you in this way. And he's like, oh, I'm going to talk about how I've been praying for you. And he goes into more lengthy descriptions of the prayer. It's something we're going to study in depth and in detail. The same thing I'm going to be praying for you guys. You should be praying for me. And we should be praying for ourselves. That we know the will of God. 
we'd be filled with all might, that we'd be knowing what he wants to do with our lives. But the thing that Paul stresses the most, the thing that gets Paul fired up, the thing I want you to know about, as Paul writes to the church at Colossae, you know what he's talking about primarily? He's talking about Jesus Christ and his preeminence. He's talking about Jesus Christ and how he is the head of the church. Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, and it primarily is talking about the body, identity, who we are in Christ. It's all about what we should be doing. He talks about that a little bit in chapters three and four. He talks about duty and what we should be doing. But primarily, this epistle is all about Jesus Christ. Because the church at Colossae, they maybe didn't know Jesus was as important as he was. And Paul said, no, we got to really understand who Jesus is because the most important thing about you is your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Most of you in here today probably are Gentiles, okay? You're not Jewish born. You're not of Jewish lineage. Paul was a Jew who was born in Rome and God contracted Paul to be a ambassador and apostle to the Gentiles. Now I say that to say this, please pay attention. Because the Gentiles back then, they didn't know how to relate to God. The Jews did. The Jews had the Torah. The Jews had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews had the stories. They had Joseph. They had Moses. They had Joshua. The Jews knew how to get to God. Jesus shows up. He's a Jew. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And then all of a sudden, the church explodes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles, they need to get saved. And the Gentiles, they don't know anything. As a matter of fact, you know what Gentiles do? They make stuff up. Gentiles, they just make stuff up. They look around, they say, okay, I bet that sun, I bet that's a God. We should worship that sucker for sure. Man, things hot, you know, and they start worshiping the sun. The moon comes out, oh shoot, there's another one. We're gonna worship the moon. A cow would go by, oh man, look at these holy cows. Oh shoot, you know, and they start worshiping cows. And Gentiles just make stuff up, make up all kinds of crazy stories about where, where's, where's the earth supported on? It's probably on the back of an elephant. It's gotta be on the back of an elephant, a big old elephant, you know. And the other people would say, you know, it's on the back of a tortoise, a big slow tortoise, you know, all this crazy stuff. Now, I want to say that to say this, because we're pretty smart. We're Americans. We're not dumb. We're smart, super smart. None of you guys are as smart as the Apostle Paul. It's just the way it is. The Apostle Paul was fluent in multiple languages. Okay, he was studied by the highest rabbinical teacher, Gamaliel. He had no rivals. He was, he was, he was the best of the best of the best in his Jewish colleagues, and then he spent 13 years on the backside of the desert with Jesus Christ himself, receiving the revelations of heaven. And so when Paul goes then to write First and Second Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philemon and Titus and Timothy and Thessalonians, and he writes all these epistles and he starts every single one of them with the exact same word, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the Gentiles. Those are all Gentile churches, Romans, Thessalonians, and Titus and Timothy, all a bunch of Gentiles, that he's, not Timothy, but writing all these Gentile people. And it's so important because you are a Gentile, I'm a Gentile, at least I assume so, and we don't know how to relate to God. We don't know how to think about Jesus. We just don't unless the Bible instructs us so. So when we read the book of Colossians, when we read the book of Galatians, when we read the book of Ephesians, Paul is telling you and I, this is how it is. Take it or leave it. And I've taught you guys this saying, when it comes to the word of God, I believe, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And the first thing you need to know in order that you would grow is to obey God's word. Okay, write that down. First thing you need to, just obey God's word. I can even make it more simple because we're not all super obedient here. But if you obey, do you believe God's word? And I remember when I was a kid, God gave me what I call saving faith at a young age. I was, I was saved. But he also gave me believing faith. I never once, even to this day, in Jesus' name and by God's grace, I never once doubted the validity of God's word. As a little kid, I never wondered, is that, is that real? Is that true? I've, I've met many, many people who have doubted it. I've never struggled with that type of faith. Now, I would say that I've struggled with my holiness, I've struggled with my righteousness, 
I've struggled with my actions just because I believe it. Just because God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Doesn't mean I've always lived that way. Can I get an amen from somebody at South Beach Church? People are like, I thought you were a Christian. Like, I know, (laughs) you know, bad day for me. But I believed it. And I would say, if you want to grow in the things of God, number one, believe what he says. You might not always act like it. You might not always understand it. You for sure won't always like it because you're a sinner. That's not the question on the table. The question is, are you willing to call this God's anointed word? Are you willing to submit your life to God's word? And when your life falls out of control and spirals in a way that it shouldn't go, don't blame the word or God. You can blame yourself that you got outside of God's will. God knows what's right. God tells us what's right. The number one thing you need to understand that I need to do is to obey God's word and to believe God's word. Every generation has groups of people that just make stuff up. And it's crazy. It's so crazy. People are just making the narrative today in today's very, very smart and sophisticated world is building a thought process that has no God in it, no heaven, no hell, no eternity, no sins, no forgiveness, no resurrection, all these things. And the Bible says, no, no, there is a heaven. There is a hell. There is an eternity. The Bible calls it the hereafter. There is a savior. There is a death. There is a resurrection. There is a coming judgment. This is what the Bible declares. And Jesus Christ poured into the apostle Paul for 13 years, telling him these things so he could articulate them. Listen, better and greater than any other scholar, even Peter, who was with Jesus Christ for three years. Paul never met Jesus except on the road to Damascus. And even Peter looked at Paul. He's like, dude, this guy's smarty pants. Dude, this guy knows some stuff. And even Peter had to say, I, okay, okay, I'm gonna follow Paul's leading. I'm gonna follow Paul's leading. And so God chose Paul to tell us exactly who Jesus is and what we should think of him because the most important thing about you is your understanding of Jesus Christ. I did a wedding yesterday in Eddieville, so cool, such a good wedding. Just, it, was, it was just fun. And as I was doing this wedding out there, I mentioned in the ceremony that this couple had wisely chosen the two most important decisions of their life. The two most important decisions of your life, number one, is who you will worship, and number two, who you'll marry. Those are the two most important decisions you'll ever make. And this couple chose to worship Jesus Christ and to marry one another on that day. And the most important decision you'll ever make is who you'll worship, who's your savior, who's your king, and who's your Lord. So that's why we have to look to Paul and learn from Paul. And I would just say this too to anybody watching online at home or with different opinions. And sometimes when I come to church here, especially at South Beach Church, I just assume we're all Christians, but I know we're not. I know not everyone here. Some people are just window shopping. Some people are still figuring it out. Some people just wanna know what's going on. And if you have a differing opinion of Paul, okay, it happens. But let me just say something. You better have a really strong case against Paul because Paul was there in the first century with the witnesses. Paul had a testimony. Paul gave and lost everything for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so unless you have a case that's tighter than Paul, unless you're stronger than Paul, unless you're smarter than Paul, unless, you're, unless you have a, a better defense than Paul, you had better just submit to what Paul says and what the scriptures give to us. In 2,000 years, no one's gonna be talking about your opinion. I don't know if you know that. You know what I'm talking about? They're not gonna be talking about your community college professor opinion. They're gonna be talking about the Apostle Paul. They're gonna be talking about the revelations that God gave to him, and not just the Apostle Paul, but the Word of God. Number one, if you wanna grow, six things you need to know if you wanna grow. Number one, obey the Word, know the Word, believe the Word. Okay, just submit yourself to it. 
And again, I said, man, we're so prideful. Well, it's an old book written by a bunch of men. I'm not sure if I'm gonna read that. Everything you ever have believed was written by a man or woman at one point or time. Everything you believe, even if it was written by yourself. So submit yourself to something that has been checked out, that has been scrutinized, that has changed billions and billions of people in the lives of many generations. Paul told us that we could follow him even as he followed Christ. Paul told us that what God had given to him wasn't given to him by man, but instead by Jesus Christ. Guys, we studied this last week. I want you guys to write down the second principle, which we also studied last week. Number two, six things you gotta know if you're gonna grow. Uh, Number one, obey the word, believe the word. Number two is keep your eyes on Jesus. Okay, in all your life, do what you do for Jesus. Just keep showing up. You won't be perfect in your life. Have you figured this out yet? Anybody give your life to Jesus and you're super fired up, you're gonna repent from drugs, repent from alcohol, repent from being a weirdo. Like, I'm gonna go with Jesus. And like, you, you, you struggle in life, you're not perfect. And let me remind you, what the Lord is not looking for is perfection, but what he is looking for and what he's doing in your life is progression. Anybody, anybody progressing towards perfection? Anybody growing still in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Okay, nine of you, the rest of you, you're not quite sure. We're growing, man. I'm not perfect. I'm not where I used to be, praise God. Not where I'm gonna be, looking forward to that. God's got me on that progression. How do we make sure we continue? Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. If you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ in every relationship you're a part of right now, in your singleness, in your marriedness, in your parenting, in your job, in your holiness, in your sobriety, in your ministry, if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, you will just keep showing up no matter what happens. You get your eyes off Jesus Christ and any sort of deviation or variation, you're going to go belly up on your marriage, belly up on your kids, belly up on your sobriety, belly up on your stuff if you just get your eyes off Jesus. But if you stay focused on him, you will continue to grow. He says right here in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wasn't an apostle of the church. He wasn't an apostle of Colossae. He wasn't an apostle of some denomination. And guys, I don't know how to stress this anymore, and I think you're doing this. It's a 9 a.m. service. You're at church right now. You're at home watching online. You're tuning in. I, I, I know men and women, young and old, who because life gets difficult and choices are made and consequences happen, and they begin to pull back on the things of God in their marriage. I'm not going to be married anymore. It's just silly. It's just stupid. And it may be true. Horizontally, things are difficult. But you didn't get married just horizontally. You got married vertically. And not just in your marriage, but in your ministry and in your difficulties and in your commitment to God's word. And when things dry up and when things get difficult, when things are hard, you can't just pull anchor and move on. Instead, you gotta put your roots down and find that water in God's word and in God's spirit in that season. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, okay? You wanna keep growing? Well, I'm not perfect. It's a real hard time, Luke. Okay, join the party. We're all there. We're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Paul was rejected, he was abandoned, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was killed, and nothing would stop him. Okay, number three, this is new territory. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Number three, if you wanna grow, you gotta know these things. You gotta know God's will. You gotta know God's will because not only are your eyes on Jesus Christ, but if you know God's will for your life, you'll be able to endure every season and every temptation, every difficulty you find yourself coming in because you know you're in God's will. You ever find yourself with things increasing in complexities and you're like, I don't know if I'm in God's will anymore. You ever done that before? And that may be very well true. There are other seasons where you're right in the middle of God's will, you know it because he led you there and it's a tough time, but because it's God's will, you're shining bright. He's doing stuff. Even when it doesn't feel like he's working, he's working. Even when you can't see that he's working, he's working because you know you're in God's will. This is imperative that you know God's will for your life. I'm gonna read it again. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. We can talk about Paul's testimony because the will of God didn't come the way that Paul had anticipated the will of God. 
Paul thought he was in the will of God in one season of his life and God blinded him, knocked him on the ground, gave him three days without food and water, led him to Jesus, baptized him and then put him in the will of God. Now Paul's like, wow, I'm in the will of God. How was it, Paul? Was it easy? No, super scary, super rough, super tough. God had to strip me down, build me up and then put me on the path moving forward. Now I know where I'm supposed to be. Let me talk about the will of God just for a little bit. How do we know God's will? Because when I say God's will, I need to define a few things. And I've taught you guys this before, but just pay attention. There are what I call God's perfect will and God's permissive will. God's perfect will for your life is what he intends right now. No deviation. Anything other than that will in your life would be disobedience, okay? It's his perfect will. And there are times where God gives you his perfect will. And if you do anything else, you're in trouble. You gotta stay in the will of God, okay? Sometimes when you ask the Lord, Lord, should I marry this person? Should I, should I be in this ministry? Should I... Should I learn your word? Should I know your word? He says, yeah, that's my perfect will for you. You stay there, no matter what. There is, however, God's permissive will, God's permissible will. Okay, this is where God looks to you as a son or daughter, and you're trying to figure out, Lord, should I start this business? Should I buy this car? Lord, should I do this thing? Should I go here or go there? And the Lord looks at you and says, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, Lord, I want to know what you want to do. And he says, you know what? You do whatever you want to do to the glory of God and for the good of others. I'll use the illustration of my, my kids. We have the perfect will of our house, and we have permissive will. The perfect will is the chores, the to-dos, the school, the stuff that they got to do. There's no variation. Any other variation is is disobedience, and they're going to get disciplined in that way. And once they've done those things, let's say my kids did the school, did their chores, did everything they had to do, and they said, Dad, we've done everything we were supposed to do. We did all the perfect will of our house. And now we're perplexed. We don't know if we should ride bikes or play basketball. What do you want us to do? And I would look at them and say, I don't care what you do. Just do so to the glory of God and the good of others. You're gonna ride your bike? Put a helmet on. You're gonna play basketball? Share and be nice. You're gonna do these things? You do whatever you wanna do. And in your life, we wanna know, am I in God's will right now? Sometimes God will reveal his perfect will. This is exactly where to be. Anything else is divulgent, is divergent, is disobedient. Don't do those things. Other times, the Lord simply smiles at you and says, I'm just enjoying watching you play basketball. I'm just, you ever, you ever have kids before? And they're not doing stuff, and you just sit there and watch them? It's so fun. He's like, now look at those kids. You ever watch your kids disobediently skip their school and not do their chores? Man, you let them know you're outside of the perfect will of Luke Rochette right now. And you bring them into correction. How do we know God's will? Number one, we run it through three filters. Number one, we run it through God's word, okay? Is what I'm about to do part of God's plan, part of God's uh, character, part of God's uh, reasoning in his word? Number two, we run it through God's spirit because it might be good in God's word, but it might be the right time. You ever done this before? You find out that there's things in God going on a mission trip. That's God's will, isn't it? All the time? No, not all the time. It's got to be God's timing. Marriage is from God. God created man and woman. He wants us to be married. He wants us all to be married. Hey, God's timing. So God's word, God's spirit. And then thirdly, if you're looking for God's will in your life, not just run it through those two, but also God's people. Accountability. Asking God, is this, is this something that you want me to do, Lord, and running it through those people that you trust? those people that you submit to, those people that hear from the Lord. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married for 20 years now, and we had our first date on January 24th, uh, 2001. And I remember it was at Geppetto's uh, thereafter church on a Wednesday night at the Ashton Christian Fellowship. And we went out there. She was uh, 19 years old, and, and I was 22 years old at the time. And we sat there, and we talked about our, our feelings for one another. And then we prayed. We said, Lord, you know what we want? We want your will. We don't want our will. And then we continued to pray for his spirit. We looked into his word. And then we talked to the people that we trusted around us, accountability partners and best friends. We said, hey, we're anticipating God leading us together. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And what, here's what God did for us. 
He revealed to us his perfect will and his permissive will that it was his will for us to be together. This is what it got for us. It allowed us to then persevere and to be resilient in all of the things that marriage brings about. I remember when we were engaged, this woman from our church came up to Crystal and she was so excited. Oh, I'm so excited. And then she got serious. She said, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> and I was standing right there. She's like, oh. And then she went out, she, kept, I don't, she felt free to talk. She's like, oh, I, I feel for you. You know, It's gonna be tough married to this guy, you know? And, and if it wasn't for God's will revealed to us through his word, through his spirit and through his people, I'm gonna be honest. There would have been times in our marriage we would have looked at each other and said, this is tough. Did we make, it, did we make a mistake? People, make, people ask those questions. I think we made a mistake. I think we made a mistake. You know, my wife and I have never, ever had that question come across our mind. I think we made a mistake in all of our difficulties. It's not been easy. Marriage isn't, it's, it's not, life's not easy. And if you know you're in the will of God, you know what you're not gonna do? You're not gonna pull anchor and move on. You're gonna be resilient and you're gonna persevere. And when God calls you, when God called my wife and I, next week will be our 11-year anniversary moving to Newport. And I remember it was March 24th and 25th. It was a weekend or two, two days, I should say, 36 hours. And I went to a mountaintop retreat center and I was seeking the Lord on behalf of my family where he wanted me to go to plant a church. I never once thought about Newport, never once. And as I was seeking the Lord and asking the Lord, I asked him, can I go to Silver City, New Mexico and plant a church? They don't have any Calvary chapels there. And the Lord went dark on me. It was like ice, there was nothing. I was like, okay, wrong question. Like, what about Bismarck, North Dakota? Man, that place is whack and they need churches out there and nothing there. What about Beaverton? And I kept praying and, and as I quieted, bless you, as I quieted myself, I felt the Lord speak to my heart on the second day. He said, Luke, you're going to Newport. And when God said I was going to Newport, my eyes began to leak. I began to cry. I felt the peace of God. I saw the plan of God. I saw peace and I saw the plan of God and I had the power. I said, oh, that's it, that's it. I never once thought about Newport. And what I did in that very moment is I rejoiced and I prayed. I said, Lord, can you do me a favor? Can you tell Crystal we're moving to Newport? I'm not, make, I'm not making any of this up. Can you tell Crystal? Because I don't want to tell her. I'm not going to tell her, man. You got to tell her. So I went home later that afternoon. And I was walking with my wife and my two sons, and I told her that I was praying about going to Silver City, New Mexico, and Bismarck, North Dakota, and Beaverton, and praying about going to Newport. And she stopped me, and she said, Newport. And I said, yeah, what about it? <laughs> and she said, I was just thinking today about Newport and how cool it'd be to move there and raise our boys on the coast and be near to your parents and and, and leave this. And I said, wait a minute, where's my real wife? Who are you? Who are you? And she was excited. God, I said, when did God share this with you? And she said, right around lunchtime, the exact same time. I said, Lord, would you, would you show her that we're moving to Newport too? And God began to work on both ends. God's perfect. You know, Paul says the will of God. And here's the thing. When you know the will of God and you know you're in the will of God, it doesn't guarantee that things aren't gonna be difficult or things aren't gonna be hard. They're gonna be difficult. They're gonna be hard. He told us. In this world, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, I've overcome this world, John 16, 33. And when we've moved to Newport 10 years ago, 11 years ago, this next week, man, I'll tell you what, you can't move to Newport unless you're in the will of God, amen, okay? You can't be here because you're gonna need to persevere, you're gonna need to be re resilient, and you're gonna have to look back and say, God called me here, God called me here. I mean, I laugh at the call that God put on our lives bringing us here. Without that call of Jesus Christ on our life here, and God has blessed us, he's blessed this church, he's blessed our family, I'm so grateful for him. Know the will of God. You want to grow? Some people just wonder. They just go ahead and they throw the dart all over the place and they wonder and they have no, they're aimless and they don't ever pray. Take this seriously. Is your life running through God's word? Do you find peace with God's spirit? Do you find confirmation with God's people? 
Look for it, and then you will be able to persevere and be resilient. You need to know God's will for your life. Paul persevered like no other. As a matter of fact, people would try and stop him. If you read the book of Acts, multiple times they come along and say, hey, Paul, you just need to settle down. You got death threats. People would come with prophecies and say, when you go to Jerusalem, just so you know, it's gonna end badly. And they began to cry, and Paul actually rebuked them right around Acts chapter 20, 22, 23, somewhere around there. Paul rebuked them. He said, stop crying. You're making me feel bad. He said, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and not just be arrested. I'm ready to die for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to finish my race with joy. How could he say that? Because he knew the will of God. He was in the will of God. There's a lot of people right now who are fretting, and I could be one of those people on any given day. It's difficult. Or you can say, I'm right where God wants me. I'm right where God wants me. I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm in his will. Oh, does that mean it doesn't rain on you? Oh, no. Oh, no. We're in Newport. It rains in the summer, you know. It'll rain in your house if you're not careful, man. It's so bad here. (laughs) Jesus said that there are two foundations to build your life on. One is the rock. The other is sand. Both will get rained on. Both will get beat on. Both will get blown on. Both will have difficulties. Everybody's going to be challenged. But the house that's built on the foundation, Jesus Christ, the word of God, the will of God, okay, it'll stand. It'll stand. You're getting blown around right now? You're getting beat on? You're getting tested? Okay, oh, I, this isn't, you know, camp happy right now. This is life. And God's working things into you. Six things you got to know if you're going to grow. Number one, obey his word, believe his word. That's number one. Number two, keep your eyes on Jesus. Number three, know the will of God. Number four, this is more practical in nature than maybe anything I'll say today. Don't go it alone. I already mentioned at the beginning that Christianity is a lot of things. Two things it's not. It's not a spectator sport, and it's not an isolation sport. It's not something that you come to church and watch me do and tell you about. It's something we do as a collective body. We participate and some assembly will be required. Look at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. He's not alone. Paul's got some homies with him. Paul always had people with him. He had young guys below him. He had his compadres next to him, and he had his leaders above him. All around his life, he wasn't doing it alone. And one of the things that the devil has tried to do in our modern media and social media and connections outside of real interactions is to divide the church. We used to have picket fences that separated houses. Remember picket fences? You'd walk over, and you could, like, stand there, and the picket fence would be, like, right here. Now we have privacy fences. Okay, I don't want to see my neighbor. You know, Wilson always looking over, trying to see what's going on. You know, we've got 65-inch TVs, and we can Zoom, we can connect. I'm just putting this out. There's challenges right now. And Paul says, yeah, I'm the apostle stinking Paul. Oh, yeah, and I got Timothy, because I'm not here alone. And I want to put, put this out there. You need accountability in your life. You can't be doing this alone. And the way Paul structures his life is is brilliant. I want you guys to to chew on this with me. I want you to even identify who these men and women are in your life to celebrate them and to cultivate those relationships around you because you're not supposed to do this alone. Paul had people with him and he was also participating alongside of them. Paul took young guys with him everywhere he went. He took Silas, he took Timothy, he took John Mark. He was always bringing a young man alongside of him, showing him the ropes, 
teaching them stuff. Jesus modeled this, by the way. Jesus would go along and grab other guys and say, hey, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What are we gonna do first? I don't know, we're gonna walk for a bunch of days. Let's go, you know, you walking with Jesus. And I have experienced in my discipleship, most of the growth I've experienced and also given to others is just in doing life with brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name. Who are you doing life with? You got some young guys that are following you, some guys you're bringing along, teaching stuff to? Paul didn't just have young guys like Silas and Timothy and John Mark. He had guys next to him, though, peers, folks that he could relate to. We call this Luke and Barnabas. These were his friends. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, he who wants friends, must he himself be? Yeah, more friendly, I like that. You got, you want, do you have a, don't raise your hand because it might be sad for some, some of you. Do you have any friends? I hope so. Friends aren't, you know, it's, it's easier when you're younger. It's harder when you're older. It just is. You got two or three friends, okay? You're rich. Don't take those friends for granted, okay? Love them, care for them, pour into them. Paul's, one of Paul's best friends is Barnabas. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. Everywhere Barney would go, Barney would just be encouraging people, including Paul. Paul would have down days and dark days and Barney would come alongside him and just pour into him and say, man, you got this, bro. I'm with you, I'm with you. And you can read the story in the book of Acts as Barnabas finds Paul in, in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. And, and be that to somebody, identify those men in your life that are your friends, the ones that know you. You have anybody you can just be real with, okay? Some of the younger people around you, you can't be completely real with. You have to lead them in that way and, and retain that kind of mantle of leadership. You need some guys and some gals in your life that you can just love on and be loved. And not only that, but you also need some people above you, okay? You need some people that are leading you. Paul would go to Jerusalem. He'd submit to the council, to James, to John, to Peter. He had Gamaliel, the leading rabbi of that day. Paul knew how to submit to authority as well. He submitted to Jesus Christ. And you and I, and I stand on this stage before you guys confessing that I also have men that are above me, men that I respect, men that I look to, men that I submit to, men that aren't intimidated by me, aren't impressed with me, and have care and devotion for me. They pray for my wife. They pray for my kids. They pray for me. They see me stepping out of line, stepping out of order, and they're not impressed or intimidated. They pull me aside and say, Luke, what's going on here? Just explain this. Just make sure we're good. You need that. I need that. We all need that. There's no way to grow. If you want to grow in Christianity, don't go it alone. Because the temptation is to isolate. The temptation is to spectate. But instead, God gives us these principles and says, no, no, if you're going to do it well, you've got to have these things going for you. I love Paul, man. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Fifthly, he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. We're in chapter two now. We got to chapter one, or verse one, guys. Give yourself one clap. Okay, good, good, good. Verse two, he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Okay, so now we've gone over in verse one, the author. Now we're getting into the audience. It's to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. Number five, five principle we're talking about today, if you wanna grow, is know your identity. Who are you in Christ? He calls them saints and faithful brethren. There's a little bit of speculation if he's talking to two separate groups here. I listened to about five different teachings and read about three or four different commentaries on this portion. Only one commentator said that this is the same group. Everyone else made a division here. That there were in Colossae saints and faithful brethren. And let me make this distinction because I believe it's two separate groups also. Because positionally in Christ, you know what you and I are? Saints. There's only two types of people in the whole entire world. Only two, saints and ain'ts. And if you're in Christ, you're a saint. How many guys on your business card have Saint Luke written on there, you know? 
How many of you guys, when you introduce yourself to somebody, hey, my name's St. Luke, you can call me uh, St. Luke. We don't do it, man. It's kind of weird. And in Catholicism, they have a whole different regime for being a saint, and we know that that word has kind of been uh, used in that, um, that kind of sect of religion. Uh, it comes from the scriptures, and it literally means that what Christ has done for you has made you a saint. Now, if you're a Catholic and you want to become a, a saint as a Catholic, there's a couple of things you got to do. It's like eight steps to becoming a saint. Number one, you have to be Catholic. Number two, you have to die. Number three, you have to do a miracle after you're dead. Number four, that miracle has to be investigated and there has to be a memoriam set up for you and the town has to kind of worship you in that way. Number five, there has to be an investigation. Number six, there has to be another miracle that confirms that. Number seven, it has to be sent to the Vatican. And number eight, then you finally are, are entered into sainthood and that's how you become a saint through all those different steps. And yet Paul says, hey, Colossae, y'all a bunch of saints in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna read it to you again. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Isn't that crazy? He gives them two different positions. You're in Christ and you're also in Colossae. We call this citizenship, okay, where we're citizens at, but we also call this our residence. See, we live in Lincoln County. Raise your hand if you live in Lincoln County. You're here at church today, you're at home. That's my residency, but my citizenship is in heaven. It's in Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven. And I might be in Colossae, I might be in Newport, but God sees me as a saint. And the fifth thing you need to know if you're gonna grow is who you are, because identity leads to activity. And if you're second guessing yourself, if you're a second rate citizen, if you identify yourself by your sobriety or the lack of your sobriety or the lack of your marriage status or what you've done or what you haven't done and all these things outside, okay, and you're a saint in Christ Jesus. The accuser of the brethren accuses the brethren day and night. And he will bring to remembrance those things you have done wrong, those things you've done illicitly, those sins you're still currently struggling with, and the devil will try and pin those on you as your identity. And you'll find yourself saying, I am a other than saint. And your identity, listen, leads to activity. If you see, if I saw, if we choose to look at ourselves as the saints of God, okay, we're gonna then act like the saints of God. We're gonna become indeed what he says, the faithful brethren. Now, let me just teach you these two theological camps. There's position, okay, positionally, and there's practically. Positionally in Christ, you're a saint. God looks at you, all of your sins, past, present, and future have been wiped away, eradicated, covered by the blood, provided for through his cross. And he talks about that in the next couple of verses. He sees you as forgiven. The handwriting of requirements that is written against you, it's gone. We're gonna see that in chapter two. You can't even write it. Practically, though, let me ask this question first. You know, this is audience participation, okay? How many of you guys here, then, are saints? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, how many of you guys here are always a saint? Raise your hand, everybody. Always a saint. You're always a saint. Although he makes this distinction, and faithful brethren. How many guys are always a faithful brethren? Couple half, you know, no. Okay, and you're not, okay, you're not. We're not. The Bible says that in our faithlessness, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. we're, We're faithless sometimes. We come up short. Positionally, where I am in Christ, man, can't be changed, I'm a saint. Practically, there's some work to be done, okay? It's a work, it's a progress. I gotta check in and say, Lord, examine my heart, what's going on? And the Lord gives me the report, oh my gosh, I got some stuff to work on. I got some things. And even as I grow and mature in Christ, there's certain things I was doing and, and part of. And the Lord says, hey, that's for kids. You're older now. We're done with that. 
You're maturing. You're growing from glory to glory. We're growing deeper in the things of God, and God has you on this path of maturation where the faithfulness is continuing. Your sainthood, it's done. It's established. It's purchased. It's protected. It's in Christ, okay? Citizenship. But your practicality down below, there's some work to be done, and it's something that if you want to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have to know your identity because it's going to lead to your activity. You ever go to Home Depot? You're walking around, you're trying to find somebody there to answer your questions. You're looking for somebody, what color apron do they wear? Orange. You're looking for the orange apron, man. You go, and if you ever ask somebody with an orange apron a question because you're at Home Depot, they'll get the answer for you, okay? Because their identity is a Home Depot employee. You ever been to a store before you ask somebody that doesn't work there something? Isn't that the most embarrassing thing? Where can I get this? Like, I don't work here. I don't. You ever ask somebody that's like offended that you talk to them? I don't work here. You ask the Home Depot employee, they want to serve you. Their identity leads to their activity. So too, if you're a saint, you're going to know what to do and what not to do. God's going to call upon you in his word what to do and what not to do, and you're not going to wonder, I wonder if I should do this or not. I wonder if this is part of my agenda, this is part of my job description. If you're a saint, you know what it means to be a faithful brethren. Whether or not you do it well or not is up to you. And we know that God has clothed us in his righteousness. And he wants us to walk with him and to serve him. Look at verse two again. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common greeting that Paul would use, and it is not meant to be a throwaway greeting. It's very powerful. And he addresses at the very beginning of his letters, grace and peace, because there's no other way to have peace, listen, except through grace. There's no way to have peace except through grace. Because even your most righteous deeds, even your most holy day, even your most honorable service to the Lord, God says is like filthy rags. There's nothing that you can do to impress him. And so God has chosen to relate to us through the commodity and the language, listen, of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And when you understand this, it, I'm, I hope you do. When you understand this, you will be flooded with peace. If you do not have peace in your life, it's because you do not in that moment understand grace. You've forgotten, you've, you've erred. Grace and peace. Have you ever had grace given to you? Where you're, you're, you're caught red-handed, you're busted, you came up short, you didn't do it right, and your employer, your spouse, your best friend, your pastor, your whatever looks at you and says, hey, I'm not minimizing what you, what you did you're forgiven. And it's that grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness, that causes us to be men and women of integrity, of holiness. Titus chapter two says, when you're graced, when you're forgiven, it actually responds in a way where you want to be a good man. You want to be a good woman. I hope you know the language of grace at your home. I hope you know the language of grace in your accountability. I hope you know grace. Do you know anybody more gracious than Jesus Christ? who from the cross prayed for his accusers, prayed for his betrayers, instructed John to take care of his mom while dying. Jesus Christ, who went and pursued women who had been abused, women who had been taken out, women who had been abusers, adulterers. And, and Jesus said, I'm gonna go, they need grace. And the disciples were like, those are unholy people and, and that's a leper, Jesus. You can't go talk to a leper. No, the leper needs me. 
That person's got a withered hand, Jesus. It's the Sabbath. You can't bless that person. They need me. Do, do, do you understand the peace of God? Have you had this? There's nothing greater than the peace of God. Nothing greater than the peace of God in your life. And it comes through a lifestyle of grace, both receiving it, listen, and reciprocating it to others. Go home today and walk in the grace of God. Give it to the people you live with. Let God be the judge. You grace people. You receive grace and you give grace. You forgive freely even as you've been forgiven. And the peace of God will flood your heart and mind. It'll guard you, it'll guide you. The sixth thing, and I'm just gonna put it out there, we're done, is you gotta know the Father's heart for you. He says, grace and peace to you from who? God our Father. This is Paul writing to the Gentiles about how we're to look at God. The Jews had just learned this from Jesus, that when you pray, pray this way, Abba, our Father. They didn't pray that way. That was new. Jesus had taught, it was a spin. You mean, you mean we're supposed to call God Dad? <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, because he's your Father. And while there's a lot of Father confusion in our world, if you understand Jesus' heart and Paul's heart, he says the Father is gonna look at you like a good dad would look at his kids. And a good dad looks at his kids with a paternal love, not a performance love. Your employer, our government, everyone around you, we love each other based on performance. As long as you perform well, it's gonna go well. I got three kids and my love for them far extends their performance. My love is not predicated upon their performance. Jesus would say of my love that my love is evil compared to the Father's love. God loves you so much. Grace and peace. If you want to grow, you need to know that God is for you, not against you. He loves you today. He loves you the same on your worst day as he does your best day. Guys, those six things. Obey God's word. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Know his will. Don't go it alone. Know your identity and know that the Father's heart is for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, in Jesus' name, we need you and we love you and, and we do wanna to respond to you. And I pray God blessings on my family here, those gathered at the church, those coming in at the 11, those watching at home online. Would you bless us and lead us? Forgive us of our sins, Lord. May your grace change us even again today. May we look at Jesus who would cheer us on today, whose prayers would be for us, not against us whose blood has been sufficient and efficient for our sins, not just ours, but the sins of the whole world. May we be gracious now as we go out. Convict us, Lord, where we need convicting. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Lead us where we need leading. Lord, use us where we need using. We thank you for all you've done, all you're gonna do. Bless us, we pray. We need you, Jesus. Protect us now. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen and amen.